John the Baptist introduced Jesus that way. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As you think about light and you think about life and you think about release from our sin and from our death and you think about the character of Jesus, his compassion toward people, you would think that that everyone would be drawn to him, that when they beheld him, they would love him and want him and follow him. And yet, we're told in the Gospel of John that he came to his own, and his own received him not. And in fact, as we've traced our way through the Gospel of John, we're in the, the end of chapter 8 now, we've, we've seen that while there are those that have received Jesus when they beheld him. There are many that have not. And that the Jesus that was presented to him, the, the true Son of God, was not welcomed, even among those who supposedly were the guardians of true religion. I think sometimes we think that if if somehow we could present Jesus right, if somehow we could convey what He's like the right way by our own lives, that, that everybody who beholds that would receive what they see, that they would welcome. And so I think sometimes we're a little shocked, we're taken back that people fight back against that. But that's exactly what we've been witnessing in the Gospel of John. We've been in John 7 and 8 for some time now, and it's all from the end of the Feast of Tabernacles where Jesus is publicly teaching uh, in the temple precincts. And as we read His teaching, it is, it is teaching that is got constant pushback. I, you know, I was talking with someone recently that I'm not used to preaching with hecklers, you know, some people have to do that. They have to preach with hecklers. Um, you know, probably my biggest test is maybe afterwards from time to time uh, we'll get somebody that pushes back, and, and I find myself so often unprepared for it, like, because it's, it's so unusual. But when Jesus is teaching, He's got hecklers. And in fact, the account in John 7 and 8 is a lot about this interchange between what Jesus is teaching and His enemies who keep pushing back and countercharging uh, what he's delivering. And what's striking about Jesus, as you look at him engage with these that aren't receiving what he's teaching, is that Jesus does not cave to his enemies or, or even try to find middle ground. Every time they object, it seems that he doubles down. He doesn't make nice with the darkness, he calls it out. And I think his example is one that we need to remember as we engage our world, that, that being winsome, that being sweetness and light does not mean that we cave to the darkness. And it doesn't mean that we shrink back in fear from saying what is true according to the Word and in keeping with who Jesus is. In the previous verses, Jesus has declared that His true disciples are those who abide, who remain, who continue in His Word. And those that do so, He sets free from sin. 
whereas those who continue to practice sin are in fact slaves to sin. He goes on to teach the children of God are evident, they're obvious, as are the children of the devil. By their response to the truth that Jesus brings. Those that refuse the truth are of their father, the devil, who was a murderer from the beginning and the father of lies. His children prefer lies. His children desire murder and harm, which was, if you think about the context, a spot-on portrait of these Pharisees who refused to receive the truth in front of them in the person of Jesus and instead desire to silence it by killing him. And he basically is putting them on notice multiple times. I know exactly what you're up to. I know exactly where your heart is. I know exactly how you're thinking, and I know why you won't receive the truth. And he keeps on teaching. Jesus is teaching these things in a, a very public setting. So you can imagine how his words stung these religious leaders who are used to the accolades of the crowd and are used to being considered uh, the best of the best. And Jesus is essentially exposing them for the frauds that they are. We take up the account of how they responded to this kind of teaching as they fire back at Jesus in John 8, beginning at verse 48. We're going to read 48 to the end of the chapter. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say, he is our God. But you have not known him, but I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. The pushback the Jews give to Jesus will serve to underscore just how great Jesus actually is. Sometimes we don't appreciate things till we see the opposite. And here the pushback reveals how stunning he is. Is he greater than Abraham, they ask? Absolutely and much more. We see in verses 48 and 50, and then it's taken up again in 54 to 55, that Jesus receives glory from God the Father. Jesus receives glory from God the Father. In verses 51 
to 53. I have 52 there. It should be 51. 51 to 53, Jesus gives eternal life to anyone who keeps His Word. And then verses 56 to 59, Jesus brought joy to Abraham. Jesus brought joy to Abraham. Let's look at this first reality that Jesus answers when they call Him a Samaritan and having a demon. Jesus receives glory from God the Father. Jesus, the Jews answered Him, are we not right in saying, you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. So the Jews retaliate by calling Jesus a Samaritan and demon-possessed. The common answer of darkness to the truth is not reasoned argument, but slanderous name-calling. They did it to Jesus, so don't be distraught if they do it to you. Now, name-calling is not an argument. And by the way, it's not, it's not cool when people who believe the truth engage in it. Just calling somebody names doesn't make it so. It doesn't prove anything. It's actually a resort of desperation. So why did, he call, why did they call him a Samaritan? Well, the Samaritans had descended from the intermarriage of Assyrians with Jews after the ten northern tribes fell to Assyria in the 700s B.C., Beyond that, the Samaritans had developed their own religion, modified from the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and rejecting the later books. They had opposed the rebuilding of the Jewish temple when the Jews returned from their exile in Babylon. Remember Sambalat and Tobiah. And they had ended up, the Samaritans, building their own temple at the base of Mount Gerizim. So, the faithful Jew the Samaritans, to a faithful Jew, the Samaritans had violated the covenant with God, both by their intermarriage with pagan Assyrians and by their corrupted religion. They are both racial and religious half-breeds in their mind. So, calling Jesus a Samaritan was their way of calling Him a corrupt false teacher and an enemy of true Jews. They add that He must have a demon He's lost his mind. He's demon-possessed, and that's why he opposes them. He's not on God's side, but on the devil's. Well, there are times that Jesus answers foolishness with silence. Remember when he rode in the ground? Very powerful. Here, he answers back. He bypasses the racial slur. He's already demonstrated that he loves Samaritans. The Samaritan woman at the well with all her sinful past showed greater insight into the truth and greater receptivity to the gospel of Jesus the Messiah than this gang of good old boys. He cuts to the core issue. Is Jesus from God or not? Is Jesus from God or not? Far from having a demon, Jesus actually honors God the Father. The fact that these enemies dishonored Jesus demonstrates that they're at odds with God Himself. You know, if you are friends with somebody, you're friends with their friends. And if Jesus is honoring God the Father, why would they be dishonoring Him? Jesus is not just out to defend His own glory by what He says. He is on earth 
because he's humbled himself and will do so even to the death. He's not, he's not this person seeking his own glory. And by the way, one of the marks of a false teacher is he's always building up himself. He's going for the celebrity status. But he's been sent by the Father. It's the Father's glory at stake. That said, God the Father seeks the glory of Jesus, God the Son. You remember what Philippians will tell us, that, that because Jesus humbled himself, God the Father has highly exalted him and given him a name that's above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. So I can't glorify the Father if I, if I am um, dishonoring his Son. God the Father will hold people accountable so whether they honor Jesus or not. So a person, you know, they might say, well, yeah, I believe in God, or I think happy thoughts about God. I think God's a good person, but I don't know what to do with Jesus. I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not big on Jesus. Well, then you're not big on God either, because Jesus revealed God to us. John 8, 54 to 55, Jesus goes on, I, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. So he's not there in the temple precincts pounding his chest about how great he is. It's my Father who glorifies me, of whom you said he is our God. But, if you have not, but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. So Jesus isn't just talking big. The Father has already clearly demonstrated time and time again who Jesus is. He sent John the Baptist before him. He did miracles, gave him mighty works to do. He testified to him through the Old Testament prophets, and they all line up. So it was a lie for these enemies to claim that the God of the Old Testament was their God while they were at the same time opposing Jesus. They don't even know God. Everything Jesus said and did was from God the Father. For Jesus to deny he knows the Father would make him a liar too, he knows him better than anyone else there, and he has known him forever. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay? So, so Jesus has openly revealed God to these men. The prophets, going all the way from Old Testament, written prophets, all the way to John the Baptist, living prophet until he was executed, gave testimony to who he was. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And, and God the Father backed his claims with miracles that no one else could do. So to just disregard what he's saying is to disregard the Scriptures and to disregard the miracles as well. How you respond to Jesus reveals what you think of God, period. Because Jesus revealed in the clearest possible ways who God is and what he's like. And Jesus fulfilled the mission given him by the Father. Now, some people try to sidestep the issue by alleging that Jesus was just a good man, possibly a prophet, but nothing more. Well, I'm not sure what Jesus you're talking about, if that's what you hold to. Because that Jesus just a good man or just a prophet, doesn't exist. It isn't the Jesus that the eyewitness documents record. The real Jesus 
is the one John the Baptist declared was greater than himself because he existed before he did, even though John was born six months earlier than Jesus. This Jesus, the real Jesus, healed the blind and the lame and raised the dead to life again. The real Jesus affirms that he is the promised Messiah to the woman at the well. This Jesus declared himself the light of the world, the very presence of God. This Jesus calls us to abide in his word and to keep his word, and that if we do so, we will have eternal life. Who talks like that? Who's just a prophet? This Jesus, the real Jesus, predicts that his voice will produce a resurrection at the end of the age. And the real Jesus declares himself judge of the world. The real Jesus proclaims that if you don't believe in him, you will die in your sins. And these men have heard all this because Jesus delivered this to them a year earlier in the same temple precincts. These are not the claims of merely a good man or a prophet. This is Emmanuel, God with us. This is the Savior of the world. This is the eternal God in human flesh calling us to trust Him to rescue us from our sin and from our death. So the question that we all have to answer is, is have I responded appropriately to the Jesus of history? Have I responded to him? You know, people talk about relationships. You know, we, we know about people, like we know about George Washington. We know about, you know, famous movie stars or presidents or kings, but we don't know them unless we know them. We, 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 we have to know who they are. We can't just make it up. Now, a lot of times people do, but if you make it up, you're not talking about the real person, right? I mean, do you like it when people make up stuff about who you are and what you said and what you're like and what your motives are and they don't match up to reality? Do you like that? Of course not. I don't like that. Do we do that toward one another sometimes? Yes, we do. But reality is reality, and Jesus is who Jesus has been testified to be, and we've got to deal with with them. We, we have to deal with who Jesus actually is. Have you dealt with Jesus of history? Now, look, if Jesus is not God in human flesh, if, if, if believing in Jesus doesn't give you eternal life, if keeping his words is not important, if, if, if Jesus is not the Messiah, then he's a liar. The very documents that would give testimony to these things that he said and did would be a pack of lies. If Jesus is a liar and those that testified to him are liars, then Jesus is no good man and Jesus is no prophet. Actually, Samaritan and demon-possessed would fit. But if he's not a Samaritan, in other words, a false teacher, an enemy of God's people, if he's not possessed by demons, then he's Lord. And you and I must bow the knee and follow him. So fast forward 2,000 years. 
What are some common slurs against Bible-believing Christians today and really, by extension, even against Christ? What are some common slurs? What are some common ways of dishonoring Jesus? And how can knowing that Jesus endured such hostility and slander help you endure? We'd like to measure how we're doing by the kind of the the feedback we get, whether it worked well, but we'll recognize that you can be doing the right thing and get bad pushback because that's what happened with Jesus. And why is it impossible, think about this, to honor God and at the same time dishonor Jesus? Let's go to the second thing that Jesus reveals here, and that's in verses 51 to 53. Jesus gives eternal life to anyone who keeps his word. In verse 51, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? So what does Jesus mean by keeping his word? If anyone keeps my word. Well, to keep Jesus' word is to treasure it. It's to obey it. It's to guard it from all deviations and deletions or substitutions. His word is absolute truth. Any departure from it automatically takes you into error. So you're going to guard it. You're going to hold on to it. You're going to treasure it. You're not going to let go of it cheaply. You're not going to replace it with something that you value more. Anyone who keeps his word will never see death. What does he mean by that? Well, it's consistent with what he's been saying about eternal life. He He is saying that you will not experience the spiritual death, what John in Revelation calls the second death. The apostles have physically died since Jesus' day, along with the generation after generation of true disciples of Jesus. But he has transformed even physical death so that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You take your last breath here, And in the next moment, you're breathing the clean air of the heavenly city where he is, along with myriad angels and the saints, made perfect the assembly of the firstborn, according to Hebrews 12. And there's more. Jesus will not fail to raise even our physical bodies from the grave. He is the firstfruits of those who died and rose again, and the full harvest is coming. Death is, is like the most powerful thing that we face. And Jesus says, even death won't have you. You'll you'll not see death. I'm going to rescue you from death. In Romans 8, 11, we read, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, that's the Holy Spirit, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Mortal means they're dying bodies. Through his spirit who dwells in you. So there's coming a physical resurrection, but... But Jesus is talking about spiritual life. And we're going to see that in what he said even earlier. The Jews turn attention to just the physical death. How could those who keep his words never experience death? Abraham died. The prophets died. Does Jesus think he's greater than Abraham and the prophets to declare that anyone who keeps his word will never see death? 
Now for us, you know, Abraham, he's like, okay, he's famous because we learned about him in Sunday school. Okay, it's, it's not like, you know, you, you have this big rallying cry, you know, Abraham for president or something like that. Or, or, you know, Abraham, okay, Abraham, okay. Well, remember who Abraham is. He's the father of the faith. He's the patriarch of the Jewish nation. He is the one that God called out of Ur of the Chaldees with the promise that God would give him a homeland and would make of him nations and kings. It took miracles to bring it about, but God made good on his promises to Abraham. Out of all the nations of the earth, God chose to reveal himself to this man and to make his descendants the recipients of the very oracles of God regarding his redemption from a sin-cursed humanity. And then the prophets. Who are the prophets? Well, they heard the voice of God, and then they relayed what they heard to people. They're the messengers of God. They're the mouthpieces of gospel promises. Without Abraham and the prophets, the world submerges into darkness and death and, and gropes in speculation. But as important as Abraham and the prophets are, they died. So these Jews weren't seriously actually asking the question. It's rhetorical. It's mocking outrage. Say, well, you know, Abraham's dead. The prophets are dead. So obviously keeping your words can't be important. But their question, are you greater than Abraham? Let's ask that seriously. Seriously. Is Jesus greater than Abraham? Yes. Yes. Is he greater than the prophets? Yes, far greater. The prophets spoke of him. He's their life giver and ours. His word brings life and conquers death. It carries with it the infinite power of God, the God who said, let there be light, and there was light. Jesus' word gives that kind of light. In Jerusalem, a year earlier, Jesus had declared this, John 5, 24 to 25, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has, present tense, eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, speaking of the future resurrection, physical resurrection, and is now here, speaking of a spiritual life-giving event, a spiritual resurrection, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. How is it that sinners who are dead in their trespasses and sin, how is it that those that are rebels and enemies of God listen to Jesus at all? His voice makes their heart hear. And when they hear, they come alive. Just as those dead bodies will come alive at the end of the age. So how are you making it a priority in your life to treasure, obey, and guard the word of Jesus? Really important for you to treasure it. Like, are you spending any time in his word? Are, are you filling your mind with his word? If, if you had to look at all the other words you fill your mind with and you look at the words that come from him, who's getting more time and more attention? And what are common ways his word is devalued today that you need to be wary of? Where are you most tempted to actually believe words that contradict his words? 
And are you aware of it when it's happening? How does knowing that through Jesus you will escape death forever help you live for him now? And I ask that question because I think one of the things that happens, particularly as we age and we have more losses and we bear more crosses and we, we, we just kind of build up the hurts and the disappointments and the disillusionments and, and, and all, that kind of, that, all that can kind of grind us down to where we feel like it's just not worth it anymore. But knowing that, that the, the worst that can happen to us, death itself, Jesus conquers, knowing that the best is yet to come gives me a reason to keep holding on to his word and to keep serving him right to the last moment, right to the last breath. You know, we, we like to be in charge. We like to, we like to be successful. We like to feel like what we're doing matters. We, we, we like the joyful times. We like the successful times. Well, then what are you going to do when you finally come to your last day on your deathbed and you can't do anything? How are you going to serve Jesus then? How are you going to hold on to Jesus then? Well, by knowing that that's not the end. By knowing that that's a doorway. By knowing that anyone who keeps his word will never see death. You come up to the door. You knock on the door. You turn the knob. You walk through. And it's not death. It's life. You're with him. Absent with, from the body and present with the Lord. Well, that leads us to our third point that we see here about the greatness of Jesus, and that's that Jesus brought joy to Abraham. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Well, when and how did Abraham see and rejoice that he would see Jesus' day. Consider what God promised in the Abrahamic covenant. Not just a promised land, but a promised people. Indeed, a promised person. In Abraham's offspring, all the nations and families of the earth would be blessed. We see that in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, Genesis 22. From the people descended from Abraham through Isaac would come one who would bring salvation to all nations and families who trust in him. Abraham rejoiced when he saw it. Well, the way Genesis puts it, he laughed. When Sarah bore him a son, miraculously in their old age, Abraham called his son Isaac, Isaac laughter. He saw the beginning of the fulfillment of the promise of God in the birth of Isaac, which is impossible. And by faith, he saw the completion of that promise in Jesus the Messiah. Jesus' firsthand testimony to how Abraham responded to the day Jesus would come perplex his audience. So the Jews said to him, verse 57, you are not yet 50 years old, in his early 30s. Have you seen Abraham? 
I mean, Abraham lived 1,800 years before Jesus. How could Jesus have seen Abraham? Well, verses 58 to 59, Jesus answered them. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. We don't know if that was a miracle or not, but we know it wasn't his time. He moved out of the, the company. Well, Jesus not only knew Abraham, Jesus says here that he existed before Abraham ever did. As God the Son, Jesus is eternal. He's the great I am. Yahweh means he is. Yahweh, God himself. Jesus has always been and always will be. He's the self-existent, ever-living one, the ever-present covenant God of Israel. That's what he's saying. And that was a bridge too far for his enemies. They rejected everything he's taught so far, so why they could possibly receive this, it's just not going to happen. They couldn't accept that Jesus is God in the flesh and therefore eternal. So they took up stones to execute him on the spot, just as they would any false prophet or any blasphemer. It's exactly what the law prescribed, if he's lying. But what if he's telling the truth? The gospel accounts make his identity abundantly clear from the beginning. Listen to what Matthew 1, what the angel says. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, that means Yahweh saves, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name God with us, Emmanuel. Jesus has consistently testified that God the Father sent him from heaven to earth to fulfill the saving mission. And that means not only did Jesus exist before Abraham, but that Jesus knew Abraham personally, not just on earth, but in heaven. Abraham had been in the heavenly city ever since he died. In the heavenly city where Jesus came from. Abraham was with God since his death, waiting for the fulfillment of the messianic promises. And he got to see the day when Jesus left heaven for earth. Jesus will later tell the Sadducees that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that God's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And you can be sure that Abraham was rejoicing along with all the angels and all the saints in heaven when Jesus made his entrance on earth, a joy greater by far than even the gladness Abraham felt when Isaac was finally born. Jesus brought joy to Abraham, and actually Jesus brings joy to everyone who trusts in him. Jesus is the supreme reason for our joy. His gospel is the good news, the news that brings joy. Every believing patriarch, every believing prophet and apostle, every believing follower of Jesus finds the greatest reason for joy in the promised Savior King, Jesus Christ. Why? Because He's the Redeemer who rescues us and rescues all creation from the curse of sin and death. Everything that's broken about our world and everything that's broken about us, Jesus came to fix.
That's joy. You know, think about the way people rejoice at the end of a long war that has killed many people and, and destroyed many cities. And when it's finally over and they're able to rebuild, think about the celebration. Think about the celebration they're going to be on the day when, at the consummation of the age, when, when God's people are resurrected and, and salvation is complete and, and the devil is in the lake of fire and the false prophet and, and the antichrist and, and God's people enter into their inheritance, the new heaven and the new earth where righteousness dwells. Think about the level of joy and think about the fact that everything depends on Jesus for me to be part of that. He's my reason for joy. He's your reason for joy, no matter what happens here. Whatever happens in your life or mine, if we are trusting in Jesus, we have the supreme reason for joy. He will rescue us. He will fulfill every promise God made to us. Abraham's life wasn't easy, not by a long stretch. It had its full share of sorrow. But every calamity, every hardship, every loss is nothing compared to the great joy that Jesus, the Redeemer, brings. He will make all things new, restoring what was hopelessly marred and broken. And He is with us all the days until that great day is today. The gospel promises of God to Abraham required miracles to happen right from the start. Have you ever thought about why the gospel itself requires miracles from God? The miracles play a key role because what the miracles do is they say, look, this isn't a pipe dream. This isn't just wishful thinking. God can actually do this. God can heal people. God can raise people from the dead. God can heal what's broken. God can rescue anybody. The miracles teach us that. My hope is not built on what humans can do, but on what Jesus has done. Without miracles, what gospel is left? And how does knowing Jesus as the ever-living, ever-present covenant God shape how you think and live each day right now? Think about it. Jesus said before Abraham was, I am. Before you were, he is. He is with you all the days. He's there. He's the living one. He's yours. And what are reasons that joy is fundamental to what the gospel brings? I mean, if it's gospel, there has to be joy. And whatever you're going through, and there's not a Sunday that goes by where I don't look into your faces and, and think about the things that, that many of you are going through. And they're not easy things. Whatever you're going through, how can you make gospel joy dominate your life? It's not denying the pain. It's not denying the sorrow. It's not denying the disappointment. It's saying that, that Jesus is going to make it all new. It's going to be okay. Our passage this morning reminds me of the famous response of C.S. Lewis to those who wanted to diminish the greatness of Jesus 
and make him merely a man. He wrote, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let, not, let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus receives glory from God the Father, so give Him honor. Jesus gives eternal life to anyone who keeps His Word, so treasure His words. And Jesus brought joy to Abraham, so you too rejoice in His blessings. Greater than Abraham? Absolutely. Let's pray. God, thank You for Your Word and Lord, I pray that it will take root in our hearts, change how we think, how we live, how we share the gospel to those who have yet to trust in Jesus. We thank you for revealing yourself to us through him, and we pray that through our lives, he might receive glory, for it's in his name we pray.